welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time, October 17th, 2021. We leave our Lord's words to speak for themselves in our podcast today, looking closer at the spiritual implication of his message rather than digging into scholarly insights on the text. The former exercise proves deeply important for our interior life, especially in periods of suffering. Understanding that the role James and John wish to possess is actually filled by two thieves leads us to recognize that heavenly success often masquerades as earthly failure, and that even when we find it difficult to imagine fruits from our sufferings, we can still hold fast to the conviction that heaven knows and honors our faithfulness. Welcome back, dear friends, to the podcast today. We are talking about the readings for the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Um, We pick up um, almost where we left off last time. There are a few verses which are left out between where we left out last time and where we find ourselves today. Where uh, the, the verses, I guess I should say, that are left out are Jesus's third and final um, prophecy of his his coming, suffering, death, and resurrection. All right. So if you recall, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, we know that he's headed to Jerusalem um, for the last time, which means he is going to undergo his passion. And uh, he is preparing his disciples for that. Now, um, pretty much every time our Lord um, foretells of his passion... He uh, gets a reaction from his disciples that's a little off base. And that is precisely what we find in our gospel here for this Sunday. So let's turn together to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. We'll read them together. And then um, today I have a little bit different of a podcast for you. I won't go into too much detail um, at this time. But uh, we're going to kind of let the text speak for itself. So with that in mind, let's try to listen even more intently to our readings um, right now, to our gospel reading, than we we may uh, usually, because as I said, I'm going to let the scriptures, for the most part, speak for themselves. So we are at Mark chapter 10, verses 30, 35 through 45, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. For the son of man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I said, I have a bit of a different podcast episode for you today because I want the scriptures to speak for themselves. There are um, times when um, Jesus speaks so clearly and so profoundly, and I hesitate to say that because that kind of makes it sound like there's other times when he does not speak clearly or does not speak profoundly. Um, But here our Lord speaks so clearly and so profoundly that I, I really desire to let his words echo um, through our lives, through our ears and through our hearts, in part because the mystery that Jesus is speaking of today is the mystery of suffering and the mystery of glorification. So let's, let's look for a brief moment at this, this request that James and John have for our Lord. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And we see, we see in this a desire. We, we, we're conjured an image of our Lord, you know, in his throne room, upon his throne. And James and John are desiring to have the seats of honor right next to the Lord, to be like sub-rulers with him. And, and Jesus does not rebuke them, but his response is profound. You, not, you do not know what you are asking. And then he goes on to, to clarify with them. Uh, are you willing to suffer? That's what he's, that's what he's asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Recall that, you know, at the, the, the agony in the garden, Jesus requests that the cup pass from him, right? So this idea of this cup and drinking this cup, we know to be this notion of our Lord's suffering. So he clarifies with them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, right? Um, St. Paul speaks of being baptized into Jesus's death. And in, in Greek, this term um, translated baptized, baptizo, uh, refers to in general, it doesn't have all the theological connotations in, in plain Greek. It refers to immersion, okay? Some scholars even say that in non-biblical literature, um, the Greek word for baptism can refer to um, drowning. Okay. So it, it takes on an intensity when we see this image in the context of suffering. Okay. So Jesus clarifies with them, are you able to do this? And they say, we are able. And he says, indeed you will, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is important. This is important here. And this is, this is about the only key that I can extrapolate for you that you perhaps have not thought before. Again, I, I like to periodically let the scriptures speak for themselves, lest, lest listeners begin to maybe even, or hopefully unconsciously begin to believe that you have to have kind of a, you know, a master's degree in biblical theology to understand the scriptures. That's not true. I'm blessed by my education and it helps so much to fully comprehend the context of Jesus's words, but the scriptures are a two-edged sword and you do not have to have a master's degree in biblical theology for Jesus's words to bring life and clarity and intensity. But here, 
to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant, Jesus says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Many scholars point to the moment in which Jesus is seen in his glory with a man at his right and a man at his left. What is this moment? This is the moment of our Lord upon the cross. And who in that moment is at his right and at his left? The two thieves, right? And that is a key for us spiritually in looking at these readings. And this is a spiritual looking at the readings, like looking through scripture through a spiritual lens is the most rich and the most profound way that we can look at the scriptures. And what this means for us is that glorification, uh, sitting at the seat of honor, right? Is, is something veiled in mystery, but even more specifically is something veiled in suffering. Jesus himself points to his moment of glory as, as his agony upon the cross. An idea that flies in the face of a human understanding of glory. And then if we are to imagine what two men are going to sit at his right and at his left in his moment of glory, do we think of these two unknown men, one of whom is resistant to Jesus still in his moment of glory? Although we do have the other, the good thief whose heart is open and who has promised redemption in the moment on the cross in Jesus's moment of glory, right? But can we, we, can we have ever imagined that the two men who would sit at his right and at his left in his moment of glory would be these, these two rascals, right? But again, this proves our point. This proves our Lord's point that glorification is intimately linked to suffering and glorification and suffering taken together are this great mystery that only God can, can expound for us. How can it be that two thieves sit at the, the seat, the place of, of honor with Jesus in his moment of glory? Why do I, why do I point us to this? Why do I point us to this? And I'm not going to go much further in exploring these ideas because again, I want you to rediscover that the Holy Spirit can expound the scriptures for you. And you don't need Katie Patrizio to, to understand the full impact of Jesus's words. You can hear them from his own lips and you can see how they apply particularly to your life and how they give meaning to your life and how the mysterious aspects of your life have meaning in Christ, even if they don't have meaning according to the world or even if their meaning is indiscernible to you or to others. I think, for example, because I, I may be for some of you speaking in in uh, in riddles. I think, for example, of the lives of the saints. Right, we see this so perfectly in the lives of the saints. So when we look at our Lord, 
his his um his suffering and death seen through a lens of 2000 years of christian history takes on a deep meaning because we can see Jesus upon the cross and we can look forward a few days to his resurrection. And we can see that that act of self-emptying on the cross bought for us our redemption. And so it takes on a certain clarity, even though it does indeed retain its mysteriousness, but there are still lives, human lives uh, fraught with suffering human lives that have a moment of glorification, which is the cross, right? Whose meaning is still being unraveled. And, and that's the lives of the saints. In, in some saints, we can, we can see their moment of glory. We can see them upon their cross and we can, we can begin to see the meaning of their life. I think, for example, of St. Joseph, right? Obviously, he was very close to Jesus. He's, he's very proximate to him. But from, from an outsider perspective, he could have been seen as a failure. It was, it was very important for most Jews to have children, okay? Now, for most Jews, St. Joseph would have been perceived as having a child, even though we know that he himself was a virgin and that his child was his child, but by adoption. Nevertheless, he only had one child, for example. He was the heir to the throne of David and yet was a poor carpenter. Okay, all these things. But but when we look at St. Joseph's life, we can see the unraveling of the mystery. We can see uh, how that self-emptying of his life and the will of God that he cooperated with wrought for us Jesus. Okay, but we can't do that. We can't, we can't always do that in our own life. And so herein, it's helpful to turn to the lives of the saints who still have a little, a little bit of a, a mysteriousness about them. I've been thinking a lot recently about one of my um, kind of new favorite saints, Blessed Carl of Austria. And by the way, we don't find the saints. The saints find us, right? You can take great joy in that idea. So sometimes I tell myself that, you know, I discovered Blessed Carl, but really Blessed Carl came and sought me out. The Lord sent Blessed Carl to me and you have saints in your life like this as well. So um, Blessed Carl uh, was was born an archduke in 1887 in Austria. And he was an archduke, but he wasn't in line for the throne. And so he imagined for him a a life of duty and a life of honor, but a life um, fairly carefree. And so um, he married and he had a family and that is the life that he envisioned for himself. But there were various markers along his life that seemed to point to a different direction for his life. So for example, there was a, a nun in Hungary and at this time, Austria and Hungary were, were two uh, united nations under, under one king. There was a, a nun in Hungary who, when Carl was, I believe, just an eight-year-old boy, spoke prophetically saying that, that Carl should be enveloped in prayer because one day he would become emperor and he would become the target of hell. All right. 
And so people actually organized themselves into little prayer groups and they began dedicating their prayer for little Carl because of what this, what this holy nun had said about him. There's also a story um, from later in Carl's life uh, when, when he was an older archduke and had the, the privilege of meeting St. Pius X, Pope Pius X. When Carl met Pope Pius X, uh, Pope Pius said, I bless Archduke Carl, who will be the future emperor of Austria and who will help lead his countries and peoples to great honor and many blessings. But this will not become obvious until after his death. That's what um, Pope Pius X said. Now, (laughs) at this time, Carl was not in line for the throne. And so somebody, somebody kind of nudged the Pope and said, um, Holy Father, I think you're mistaken. Um, Archduke Carl is, is not the future emperor of Austria. And I guess the story goes that um, Pius X kind of brushed them off and was like, I don't know, abdication, death, something. As if to say, I'm just telling you what the Holy Spirit is telling me. I don't know the details. But Pius X's um, words proved to be prophetic, Right. Because um, through through uh, through through some details, uh, Blessed Carl did end up becoming um, kind of next in line for the throne, or second removed from the throne. And then when um, uh, another archduke who was who was in line for the throne was assassinated, the archduke. Uh, who was assassinated and whose assassinated assassination actually began World War One? Carl immediately became that what they call the heir presumptive, the next in line for the throne. And World War One began with this assassination. Carl knew he was next in line for the throne. In the middle of World War One, the emperor dies, and blessed Carl becomes emperor. And he dedicates his time and energy to trying to negotiate an end to World War I, privately negotiate, secretly negotiate an end to World War I. His negotiations were unsuccessful, unfortunately. And yet, even with his, even with his deep devotion to his people and his deep desire and working for peace, as World War I began to come to a close and in the direct aftermath of World War One, the people of Austria decided they wanted uh, no longer to have a monarch, and they actually deposed Blessed Karl. They exiled him and his family first to Switzerland, and then to a small Portuguese island. They confiscated all of his personal property, all of his money, everything, so that when he was living on this this Portuguese island. He was living in a poor, drafty house that was really unlivable. And because of these conditions, he contracted first a pneumonia that turned into a, a severe lung infection and then claimed his life at the age of 34. And so in Blessed Carl's life, we see a life that mirrors Jesus upon the cross, right? because he was stripped of his honor. He was stripped of his dignity. He was stripped of his money. He was stripped of his rights. He was rejected 
and misunderstood. And because of this, largely because of this, he died an early death. But if the words of Pope Pius X are true, he underwent this suffering in order to bring great honor and many blessings to his country and his people, even though this would not become obvious until after his death. Now, why do I bring up Blessed Carl? Because in some ways, because I cannot point to yet the many blessings that he has garnered for his country and for his people. At least I cannot point to blessings that are perceivable. And this is the point that I want to drive home for us. I want to point us to certain saints whose glorification is not yet manifest, at least not yet manifest in the world. And this is okay. Because our suffering and our glorification is not primarily for our personal glorification or even for earthly glorification. Suffering and glorification is for God's glorification and for heavenly glorification. We are so used to thinking in earthly terms that even when we look to the lives of the saints, we want to see some very obvious earthly effect wrought by their holiness. But what is more real, an earthly effect or a spiritual effect? And which is more real, earthly glory or heavenly glory, right? And so heaven knows the spiritual fruits that blessed Carl has wrought by his suffering and death for his peoples and for his countries, even if you and I don't know that. And the heavenly court knows the glory of blessed Carl and honors him for the way in which he remained faithful to God. And so what our readings subtly show us is that if we look to the two rascals one on Jesus's right and one on Jesus's left at his passion and death. And in them see the two men destined to sit in places of honor next to our Lord in his moment of glorification. And that makes no sense to us. Then when our suffering makes no sense to us, it's congruent, even though it is difficult, but that is part of the suffering. Is it not that it, that it doesn't make sense because if we could look, if we could move forward and then look back on our lives and our sufferings and, and make sense of them in the moment, would not that take all the suffering away? I mean, that's the paradox of suffering. And that's why we also need to hold on to, we need to hold on to Jesus's agony in the garden because had his physical suffering began at that moment, well, sure, when he began sweating drops of blood, I'm sure that was extraordinarily uncomfortable to say the least. But what kind of suffering did Jesus begin his passion with? He began his passion with intense emotional and psychological suffering. And he was bargaining with God. And is this not what we find ourselves doing in moments of suffering, in periods of suffering, in seasons of suffering? 
So yes, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we can see the fruit of his, his suffering and death. Praise God. Even though we may not be able to look right now at our suffering or the sufferings of those we love and see the fruits that they are bearing, but we have to understand that they are bearing fruits. We have to believe that we are bearing fruits. We have to hold on to the fact that even if our life appears to be a complete failure, that it still bears meaning in the eyes of God. I want to to close uh, uh, with another example um, for you. this is, this is also somebody that I've recently discovered. Someone in my parish recently sent me this story and I was very, very moved by this story. It's actually an article that appeared in the, um, in last Easter's um, edition of The Word Among Us, the actual hard copy of it. You can find the article online. You'll just have to sign up for like a, a free trial to access the full article. But this article is called No One Is Ever Lost. And it's about this young man named Jacques Fesch, who is French, as you can imagine by the name. And uh, here's the opening paragraph of this article. On February 25th, 1954, a young man fleeing a botched robbery in Paris panicked and shot wildly. He killed a policeman and seriously wounded a bystander. The would-be thief was arrested condemned to death by guillotine and confined in a maximum security prison. An atheist, when he entered, he experienced a conversion so profound that on the night before his execution, he wrote, my head will fall, glorious ignominy, with heaven for its prize, I am happy. The lost soul of Jacques Fesch had been salvaged in prison by Christ. It's an amazing story. So, so um, you know, he is 24 years old. He's arrested for, for killing a policeman in this, in this botched robbery. He tried to rob a bank and uh, is, is um, sentenced initially to, um, to uh, solitary confinement. And in his solitary confinement, he discovers the scriptures and he discovers Jesus and he discovers the, the mystery of the cross. At one point uh, he writes, Jesus draws me to himself. He gives me so much while asking for so little. This is this was like just unreal to me to read because it proves that God's grace can literally completely transform someone such that this, this rascal, right. Can be put in prison and somehow in prison be so thoroughly touched by an encounter with Jesus that he, he, he's going to die a mystic, right? I mean, somebody who writes, Jesus draws me to himself. He gives me so little, well, he gives me so much, excuse me, while asking for so little. That that's those are the words of a mystic, right? Somebody who is encountering Christ. If that's not enough for you, um, these are some of the last words that Jacques Fesch wrote. He says, 
in five hours, I shall see Jesus. This is, this is um, hours before his execution because he knows at what time he's going to be executed. In five hours, I shall see Jesus, how good he is. He draws me ever so gently to himself, giving me a peace which is not of this world. I wait in the dark and in peace. I await love. In five hours, I shall, I shall see Jesus. So he has, this, he has this profound conversion. He spends, I believe, three years in solitary confinement, um, has this profound encounter with Jesus in solitary confinement and, and gives his life over to our Lord so that in those few years, he's completely transformed and is writing, um, is writing journal entries like this, is writing letters to others. And when you look at his life from the outside, what success is in it? In fact, not long after his death, the, the Archbishop of Paris tried to open his cause for canonization. This is in 18, or 1987. Tried to open his cause for canonization and, and encountered so much opposition that he had to put the effort on hold because people said a murderer cannot be a saint. But this is because we're looking at somebody's life through the, lot, through the, the, the lens of, of earthly ideals. And God does not see that way. God can see in the life of a murderer a life transformed and a life completely given over to Christ. And is that not the definition of a saint, right? So this man took the pity of his life, uh, the, the unsuccess of his life and turned it over to Jesus and made it something that still now is in some ways despised on human accounts People still call him a murderer, still say he should never be raised to the altar of a saint. And yet I imagine he is glorified in heaven for that, that heroic act of giving himself over to Jesus and accepting Jesus's tremendous love. So that in a few years after um, the Archbishop of Paris had to put this cause on hold in 1993, his uh, cause for beatification was uh, formally opened. In five hours, I shall see Jesus, how good he is. He draws me ever so gently to himself, giving me a peace which is not of this world. Friends, I feel like I've been a little bit scattered, a little bit all over the place, but what I want to say is that earthly estimations and human estimations of our life are only a small sliver of what they're really worth. And so in moments of suffering, when we have nothing to hold on to because we don't see any of the fruits of our suffering and we are only immersed in darkness, understand and hold on to the fact that Jesus on the cross wrought the most fruit that any human act possibly could. And that our suffering, when united to the suffering of Jesus, does exactly the same. It, it renders tremendous fruits that, 
that the Lord may allow to be seen in this life, but we can be sure they shall be seen in the life to come and they shall be glorified in the life to come by the entire court of heaven, all the angels and saints who will see the worth of our suffering united to that of Jesus and will sing praise to God for our willingness to participate in our life and the passion of Christ. <laughs>